All right, let's begin today uh, with prayer. Father, I want us to see Jesus more clearly today. Uh, Lord, I, I'm 48, uh, been in seminary forever, it seems like. Uh, Lord, I've, I've been studying the Bible seriously for years and years and years, and yet I fail to see the entire uh, beauty and glory of Jesus. Father, I think I'm seeing a little more, though, and I want to be able to take that little more and show it to the congregation through the study of the Word today. So, Father, help me to do that, uh, or just get me out of the way and you do that, Father. That's what we really need, is you to teach us more about the glory of your Son. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to see an episode in the life of Christ today that we could pass over fairly quickly, or actually several episodes. But I hope and pray that it's going to teach us more about the person and the heart of Jesus. Now, it tends to be two uh, theological veins that occur in, in Orthodox Christianity. One of them is the very, uh, the very logical, the very thoughtful, the very rational, sometimes cold, though, theological precision, okay, on one hand. And then on the other hand, there tends to be this emotional, passionate, but too little attention to doctrine and detail on the other side. What I really want this church to have is the best of both worlds. All right, now pay attention to this sentence, okay? (laughs) I want us to understand the truth and then passionately respond to the true Jesus that is revealed in the scriptures and in the indwelling spirit. Please read with me Luke 7, 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now, verse 11 starts with soon afterward. Well, soon after what? Soon after Jesus' encounter with the centurion that we talked about last week. Now, why did Jesus go to Nain? Nain is a little insignificant village today. It was a little insignificant village back in that day. Not any hub of people, uh, not any happening place with trade or anything. I mean, why did he go there? Well, I don't know. The Spirit may have told him to go there. But what I do know is that Jesus had the greatest, really the perfect, understanding of the sovereignty of God. He lived every moment completely in the Spirit. And what I mean by that is that He was always in absolute obedience and submission to the Father. Jesus knew that everywhere He went, He was supposed to be there. And God had something for Him to do. If you are walking in the Spirit and you say to me, 
what is God's will for my life today? Uh, you know, exactly. Like, where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to eat? Who am I supposed to talk to? I'll tell you, I don't know. But if you're walking in the Spirit, I can tell you exactly what was supposed to happen yesterday. It's whatever happened yesterday. Okay, do you see what I'm saying? So Jesus knew that where he was going and what he was doing, he was obeying the Spirit, submitting to the Father all the time. Now notice, please, that he didn't just sit still and wait for God to show him his calendar for the next year. Okay, I want to do that. (laughs) I want to say, God, would you show me the road I am to follow? And when I understand the road, I will hop on it and I will stay on it. Well, that's not how it works. I mean, when I was 18, I thought it was perfectly reasonable for me to pray to God and say, Lord, what do you want me to do with my life for him to tell me and then me do it? Well, he didn't uh, choose to go that way. (laughs) So it's a step-by-step dependence on him every bit of the way. So Jesus proceeded in the Spirit with an unshakable faith in the sovereignty and the purpose of his Father. Luke 7:12 says as he drew near to the gate of the town behold a man who had died was being carried out the only son of his mother and she was a widow and a considerable crowd from the town was with her Now this poor widow obviously being a widow she had already lost her husband and now her only son had died Now what terrible grief and suffering this woman must have been enduring Her past was filled with loss but her future was terribly bleak as well There was no one left to provide for this woman. They did not have life insurance or social security. She would literally have no way to provide for herself. It's no wonder that there was a considerable crowd from the town. They were there to support her because they knew uh, the loss she had suffered, but also the bleak future that she faced. Now, I really want us to see Jesus has compassion on the grieving Jesus' compassion is what we're going to talk about today. In verse 13, it says, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said, Do not weep. Now, if you or I said this to her, we would be the most insensitive of jerks, right? To say, Don't weep. She had every reason to weep, and who would we be to say anything about it? Jesus, though, could say this because he could comfort her in a way that you and I never could. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, guys, the the only real words of comfort, the only real thing that can comfort us when we have a loss is knowing that Jesus can fix it. We can't think of the right things to say all the time. Really, it doesn't matter what we say because we can't provide much comfort. We can just be there. But Jesus can and actually will for all the believers provide this same comfort. One of these days, those who have gone before us, we're going to be able to see them. We're going to be able to reunite with them if they were in Christ. And so that is going to be the same reconciliation that we have that Jesus gave to this mother. He's going to be able to reunite us. Now, I think when I get to heaven... And I think any believer who gets to heaven is going to be uh, wanting to see, you know, their their loved ones that have passed on. I think our focus, our primary focus is going to be wanting to see our Savior. But we'll have plenty of time to catch up with those other people as well. And so one of these days, Jesus is going to reunite those of us who are missing loved ones who are in Christ. He'll return them to us like he did this lady. 
Now, why did Jesus do miracles? Well, one true and theologically sound answer is that Jesus did miracles to prove who he was and the validity of his message. And that is absolutely true. But that's not what this particular passage says. Now, who asked Jesus to heal this guy? Nobody. Who had faith that Jesus was responding to? Nobody. But so why did he do it? He did it because he had compassion on her. Now, to be candid with you, I am more comfortable preaching the Jesus that we see in Daniel than I am preaching this compassionate, mild, meek Jesus. Now, it's the same Jesus. Don't get me wrong. What I mean is that I understand his glory and his greatness and his power more than I understand why he would have compassion on someone like me. But we need to understand both because each facet of Jesus makes the other more glorious. You know, if you were to have compassion on me, that would be great and noble, but you're just a sinner saved by grace, right? But for Jesus, for this one who created the universe and holds it together by the power of his word, for him to have compassion on me, that is mind-blowing. Although the text says that Jesus was motivated by compassion, the miracle also did have the effect of letting people know who he was and validating his message. In verses 16 and 17, it says, Fear seized them all, and I bet it did. Uh, you, you stop a funeral train on the way and you get the guy up. That's going to definitely leave an impression. They glorified God saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Boy, they were telling the truth. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So Jesus had compassion on this grieving woman. And not only did he have compassion on her, he fixed it. Now, we know that our, when we lose somebody here, we're not going to get them back until we see them in heaven. But one of these days, we will be reunited with them, just like Jesus did for this lady. Jesus also has compassion on the doubting. Read with me Luke 18, I mean 7, 18 through 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now this is John the Baptist, who pointed out Jesus and said, This is the Lamb of God. He's having a little bit of a crisis here. He is in prison, and he sends his disciples and says, Are you really the one? And when the man had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour... He, being Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Now, He's going to talk about John, who just came and kind of questioned who he was. So, we would expect Jesus to say, you know, John used to be a good man of faith, but he's having a crisis. But that's not what he says. 
He says, what then did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So to sum up John's question and Jesus' answer, John said, Are you the Messiah? And Jesus said, See for yourself that I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Now, is he angry with John about his moment of doubt? No, he is compassionate. What do you do when you have doubts? Well, you do what John did. You take them to Jesus. And you look to Scripture to bolster your faith. I mean, that's what he did. He went to Jesus. He sent people to Jesus and he said, are you the one? We, when we have doubts, we can go to Jesus. Now, what did, what, how did Jesus answer him? He said, I am the one giving sight to the blind and preaching good news to the poor and these other things. So he pointed John back to the scripture to say, you can look to the scripture to see who I am. So look to scripture to bolster your faith. Instead of feeling ashamed and staying away, dive into prayer and into the word and the church when you have doubts. Do you know what causes doubts? Well, crises in your life can cause doubts, but also getting away from prayer and the word and the church can cause doubts. So don't do it. But if you have doubts that crop up occasionally, Jesus will show you compassion, not rejection. Listen to what, and I'll probably never say this guy's name right, Thabiti Anyabwile. Anyway, listen to what he says. He says, the way to happiness is not to give in to your doubt. The way to happiness is to answer your doubts with the evidence we have in Christ. Never treat your doubts with certainty, although always doubt your doubts. Never let your doubts have the last word. If they are truly doubts, then seek answers on which to stand. Find evidence. Follow the evidence to the truth and then build certainty with the truth. That's the life that Jesus blesses. Doubt makes us short-sighted. Faith gives us the long view. The Lord gives John evidence to answer his doubt, and he gives John a promise of joy to strengthen his faith. Jesus is a Messiah who answers our doubt. 
Uh, let's go look back and look at this one strange verse that we read. It says, uh, verse 28 says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, none greater born of women. Does that mean that he was more righteous than, say, Job and Daniel? Does it mean that he had more of a heart for God than King David? I don't really think so. I think it had more to do with his calling and his position to Jesus. Now, he was really the last Old Testament prophet. And you may say, well, no, he's in the New Testament. I understand that, but he was, uh, he was functioning under the Old Covenant. So really, John is the very last of the Old Testament prophets. But John, you know, the Old Testament prophets would speak for God, and they would point to Jesus. But John was actually pointing to Jesus, like, there he is, right? <laughs> and saying, behold, this is the Lamb of God. He had the privilege of even baptizing Jesus. Now, what does it mean to be, what does it mean that he's least, that the least in the kingdom of God is greater than him? I think the thing that Jesus was talking about how he's, he's the greatest of these, or, or at least there's none greater, is that he was actually there to point to Jesus more directly, more clearly, uh, more tangibly than any prophet who had come before. And so when it says those who are in the kingdom are greater than him, even the least in the kingdom, you see, John lived and died before the death and resurrection of Jesus. On this side of the resurrection, we have a more complete understanding of Jesus' work than even John the Baptist had. Because we have seen uh, the entire life of Jesus. We've seen the death. We've seen the resurrection. And then we have all this wonderful scripture that explains what happened. And Christians now in the new covenant have the spirit of Christ indwelling us. Romans 8 9 says, you, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So see, everyone who is a believer, even the least in the kingdom, has the indwelling Spirit of Christ. Speaking of which, that if somebody comes to you and says, you know, I understand that you're saved, but you need the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, I would take them to Romans 8 9 and say, brother, if I don't have the gift of the Spirit, then I'm not a believer. It says, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. So when you are saved, when you repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ, you get the whole package. You get the, the Holy Spirit included. We've seen Jesus' compassion on the grieving. We've seen it on his compassion toward the doubting. Now I want us to see Jesus has compassion on the sinner. Thank God. Verses 36 through 50, and this is such a beautiful story. Listen and don't zone out. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, is that's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him, <laughs> it'd be kind of weird if you were thinking something and somebody answered you, wouldn't it? Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. 
When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kisses, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So how much do you love Jesus? I think it's directly proportional to your realization of how much you've been forgiven. You know, the longer I serve the Lord, the more I realize how much I have been forgiven. I hope that's true for you as well. I I think I've told you before, but I'm going to remind you that one of the most passionate, joyful experiences of worship I have ever had, I had when I went on a mission trip to Pontiac, Michigan. There is a rehab place up there, but it's more than a rehab. It's really where they take folks in. Uh, It's a Christian organization. They don't take any money from the state. They are run completely by uh, um, astonishing faith. Uh, The guy that runs the place is named uh, Kent Clark, kind of like Superman, but backwards. And after meeting the guy, I I do think he's Superman. Uh, He would go into the month and he'd say, well, Lord, I have no idea how we're going to pay for anything. Uh, but this is your ministry. It's, it's your uh, business that we're doing. Please fund us. Well, man, did he. God has given them the funding to buy uh, basically an entire block there in Michigan. And so they have this one large building where people come and they get, they get uh, rehabbed. Um, then they go and they live off there in that block for a while. And so he maintains this program for a long time and really gets these people back to a great place and, and loving the Lord and serving the Lord before he graduates them. So their recidivism rate is, is really wonderful. So I was there and I was worshiping with these folks. And these guys were uh, heroin addicts, prostitutes, um, sellers of drugs. I mean, these were the dregs of society who had been taken in, given the gospel, transformed into new creatures. Guys, you, did, you couldn't hold them down in worship. They were so full of joy. They didn't care what somebody on the next pew thought about them. They didn't care at all. All they thought about was, how can I passionately display my joy and my love for the one who saved me? Guys, if we can get to where we understand that, we won't worry about the date a song was written. We won't worry about how many minutes a song takes. (laughs) We will just say, does this tell about Jesus? Does this accurately reflect my Lord? If it does, I'm going to worship with all that is in me. Like they did. Do you understand how forgiving and compassionate Jesus is? I don't. But I'm realizing it more and more. Do you ever feel like eventually God is going to get sick of your failures and distance himself from you? 
Do you ever feel like, man, I just, I blow this over and over. How long is God going to put up with me? It's kind of like maybe he holds his nose and deals with me because he's got to. It's like a little kid that touches a slug and recoils. You know, it's like, oh, it's disgusting. Is God going to get to that point with me? Do you ever feel that way? Imagine a doctor who goes to, to a third world country. And he goes there not expecting any pay. He goes there just to serve the people. But these tribal people are scared of him. They don't want to have anything to do with him. Now, he's not having contact with these, these dirty, diseased people. But he's also not fulfilling his mission. He's not getting to do what he went to do. But imagine these folks finally get over their fear and they start coming to him. And he's able to treat them. And they have all these horrible diseases and he's, he's dealing with, you know, leprosy and he's dealing with infestations of worms and all these horrible things that happen to these third world people. Now he's getting in there and getting close to those who are filthy and, and, and diseased, but he, is, he has joy because he is doing what he has come to do. So when you approach Jesus in your need and your doubt and your grief and your despair and your sinfulness... Don't think that you're repulsive to him. That is what he wants you to do. He wants you to come to him to be healed. Now, please don't hear me say that, you know, well, I love sin. I love to sin and God loves to forgive sin. So we're a good match. (laughs) That is not what I'm saying. Um, A Christian hates sin. You know, I I hate spiders. I hate them. (laughs) They they make me itch and, and feel like something's crawling on me when I look at one, right? Uh, If a black widow got in my bed and bit me and I went to the hospital and recovered, well, I'd have to move to a different house. I might have to move to a different state. I hate spiders. That's the relationship a Christian needs to have with sin. I don't see how close I can get to the spider before he kills me. I stay away from the spider, right? And sometimes I'll talk to Christians and they'll say, well, what's this line I can get to? How close to sin can I get? That's not what a Christian says. A Christian says, I don't want near the sin. I'm repulsed by it. John Bunyan wrote this wonderful book, Pilgrim's Progress. Have any of y'all read that? Did you have to read it when you were in school? You did? That's great. I wish that were still required. I very highly recommend to you Pilgrim's Progress. But he also wrote 57 other books. One was called Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. To help us understand the compassion And the love of Jesus. Listen to this little part that he wrote. He was talking about this verse, John 6, 37. It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Here's what he wrote. But I'm a great sinner, you say. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I'm an old sinner, say you. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, says you. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I'm a backsliding sinner, say you. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, say you. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, you say. I will never cast out, Christ says. But I have sinned against mercy, say you. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, says you. I will never cast out, says Christ. This promise was provided to answer all objections, and it does answer all of them. As I think we dramatically 
underestimate the love and the compassion Jesus has for those who are his. And I think we dramatically underestimate the wrath of God that is in store for those who fall under God's righteous judgment. We need to tell our neighbors that. We need for them to flee to the source of compassion. Jesus is more compassionate than we can possibly get our heads around. But God's righteousness is more dreadful than we can possibly understand if we're judged on our own merit. We need to share the message of the gospel with those around us. We need to bring people into the church where they can hear the real solution. Folks need hope, but they don't need false hope. They need real, genuine hope. And we can provide it for them in the gospel. So let me tell you guys, if you aren't sure that you are saved, come talk to me. And and if it disturbs you when I say a Christian hates sin and you don't want to see how close to it you can get, if you're like, well, I kind of do want to see how close to it I can get. You know, I want to edge up to sin, but not quite make God angry. If that's the way you really feel in your heart, this is an indication that there's something really wrong there. So don't take that lightly. Instead, say, I want to be repulsed by sin. And you can say, Brother Steve, are you repulsed by sin? Well, yeah, except when I'm not, you know. <laughs> I mean, if I, if I didn't choose to sin, I wouldn't sin. And so I do choose to sin. But I can't wait on that day when I am sinless in the presence of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, would you teach us um, the depths of the compassion of Jesus? Father, sometimes I fail and I think, how can you put up with me again today? (laughs) Well, Lord, because you're just more compassionate and more forgiving than I can get my head around. But Father, having said that, let that not be a license to sin. Lord, help us despise sin. Help us recoil from sin that we may be a wonderful and true and good servant to you. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name.